What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney George Stone is editor in chief of National Geographic Travel an avid explorer and passionate storyteller, Stone views travel as a tool for transformation and for connecting with other cultures, principles that help guide his editorial mission statement. A National Geographic Traveler magazine writer and editor for 20 years, Stone has written and edited articles that have received awards from the North American Travel Journalists Association and the Society of American Travel Writers, Lowell Thomas Award. Travel is about discovery. It's a social exchange on a global scale, an exchange that we can all access. My goal is to empower our audiences to embrace travel as a tool for exploration, cultural engagement, creative expression, and personal growth, he says. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. George, welcome to What Got You There. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, no, of course. We we were just saying that that you have a very busy day. So I'm wondering, how do you typically start your day? Traditional work day for you, any routines, things you dive into first and foremost? Yeah, so um, so we have two dogs. So I start my day by picking up poop in bags. <laughs> and, um, and not only that, but um, but I live like not far from where my boss lives. And I'm always thinking as I'm walking by her house, I'm like, you know, this is like the big metaphor here is like, you know, I'm, I'm trying my best to look like I'm put together, but I, in fact, I'm tangled up in dogs carrying bags of poop and, um, and at 7 AM. And, and, and so the good thing about that is the day will only improve. That's, <laughs> that's my mantra in the morning. Yeah, definitely, definitely a smelly way to start the day there. <laughs> yeah, totally. So I, I live in Washington, D.C., um, and I'm very lucky because I can walk to work. So I work at the headquarters of National Geographic Society, um, which are um, 17th and M Street in Washington. And um, so every day um, I walk, I listen to some podcasts. Um, I, some of the time they're silly, like RuPaul. Um, some of the time, you know, it's, um, it's Pod Save America, um, if, if I can handle it. Um, but, um, but often that just sort of annoys me. And, um, but what I really like is your podcast on. So, um, so what got you there, um, often gets me to work and, um, then I settle in. Mm-hmm. So I, I do appreciate that. But when, when your mind wanders, you said sometimes you can't handle the, the pod save America. And I'm sure there's times you're consumed with work. Where does your mind drift to? Are, are there any things that you're constantly thinking about, uh, battles you're struggling with, with your head? 
Yeah, I mean, I think um, anyone who uh, who works with a lot of people, and so I'm a manager um, as as an editor in chief of of a magazine. I manage a lot of people. You're very concerned with um, with sort of um, not just the product and our engagement. Where our mission is to communicate and to connect with our audiences globally, and to do that, we need to have the very best content. Um, I'm also concerned, though, with who are the people on the team, what, how are they motivated, how are they performing, and um, what can I do to support that? Um, so when I walk to work, I'm, I'm often thinking, okay, you know, um, <laughs> one is like, I, I, can I make it through today? Usually the answer is yes. The other thing is like, okay, well, what, you know, what can we do to sort of improve the quality of the day and to try to make, um, to, to try to get to better content more easily because ultimately that's what we're here for is to connect with our audiences. I would love hitting on the management side of things. We've recently had a lot of listeners ask questions about when they're managing their teams, how do they both help the development of the people they're managing and making sure they're accomplishing their daily tasks, but then also focus on themselves and be able to to help their own development? How does that occur? I think that's a really good question. Um, and and I'm just learning. So um, you know, I'm I, I guess I'm 46, and so I've um, spent most of my life being managed, and I'm, I still am because um, I, I have many superiors. But um, but I manage uh, about a dozen people, and um, and one thing that I'm trying to do lately is I'm trying to make a distinction between what people want and what people need on the team. And um, I figure that if I can understand what people want, and it's not all about what employees want, um, uh, then I can get a little bit closer to understanding how people are being motivated, and that can help me. I mean, we have we have a core mission. We have an editorial publishing calendar. We have products that have to go out, and we have audiences that are very real in the world, and we have real-time analytics online to so that we can make adjustments to make sure that we're creating the right content. So that's like the external side of it. That is our job. But on a um, on a you know on a person to person basis, I want people to be happy, fulfilled, um, to make contributions. Um, I want to have longer careers here at National Geographic. And um, so so when I, when I sometimes sit down with people, I'm like, I want to figure out what do people want? They might not get what they want, um, but I want to know what they want. Um, and then together, and, and then I think as a director, I need to figure out what do we need to succeed and, um, and to try to figure out how to marshal, um, you know, our forces. And then another part of that is really um, over time to figure out what are people's strengths and um, and then to try to find a very logical way um, within our team to take the best advantage of people's strengths and then also to give them support and in increasing their capacity in areas where maybe they're not so strong. I mean, being a manager certainly isn't easy. You, you're juggling a lot right now, aren't you? Well, it's it's also management within, um, like everybody, within you know a very changing landscape. So the media landscape um, has has changed significantly, and um, 
And it's um, and because of our very real time analytics, we are able to see uh, digitally what is succeeding, what isn't succeeding. So every day is kind of a new challenge. Within travel media, we're not exactly news. We um, we track along with news, and we definitely are um, are sort of a service uh, to help people go out and see the world. But we have to be very alert. And um, and we have to be very attentive to our current audience and then figure out how to grow our audience um, through storytelling. And so when you're National Geographic, people are coming to you um, already with a sense of visual storytelling, a sense of mission and conservation. And um, and they're coming with a, a sense of discovery and curiosity. So th- when we know this about our audience, um, then we can get closer to delivering that content consistently um, because our goal is to succeed, but, um, you know, to succeed together by growing our audiences or finding audiences out there that um, that we don't know about yet. And they do exist. Um, so my magazine, National Geographic Traveler, has 18 international language editions. Um, and one thing that's cool about that is, um, is that the editions aren't the same. Um, we created North American edition, um, but the way we see travel, the way we see destinations, the way we approach our audience in North America is different from the way our Indian edition approaches travel and destinations. Some of it's regionalized, like in um, the U.S., we're interested in certain places that are different from the, our Indian audiences, but um, and some of it is stylistic, um, but um, it's fascinating to um, to share content, to see content transform and become um, more useful for regional audiences around the world, and so that kind of that aspect of globalization within media is something that we actually experience um, every day here at National Geographic because we're a global media brand, and that's one of the the best parts about working here. I mean, you mentioned tapping into big data. You're dealing in an environment and an organization that is constantly going up against disruptive technologies, disruption in the current marketplace. How do you guys stay on top of those trends? Well, fortunately, um, it's not all my job. So, um, <laughs> we've got we've got a substantial team here, um, and um, that are that are tracking. So, we've got um, a, a very large uh, market research group. We have um, we have people who are focused on distribution of our content, audience engagement um, across, uh, say, social media platforms. We have product development group that is um, you know working across National Geographic titles to create the the product and. Uh, um, and the 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 tools um, and the, to generate a positive user experience. So we're building um, our audience. So collectively, um, we can really make things happen. And um, but it requires you know a, a ton of internal coordination, and that in turn requires a lot of investment. I mean, keeping up in the travel media space today. That's one thing if you're Jeff Bezos um, and you own the Washington Post, and this is super, but um, we don't have a Jeff Bezos at National Geographic. And so um, so we have to make the most of um, every tool we have, and um, and we have to work closely with our content creators, our writers, and our photographers who come to us partly because they know that they will be treated well by National Geographic and that they will reach a high-quality audience. And we really have, you know, we put a lot of effort into these relationships. I mean, I'm absolutely fascinated by that stuff, but I want to get back to the origin story, really uncover who you are. So where did the love of travel first begin for you? 
Well, I was uh, born in Toledo, Ohio, and um, and uh, and the love of travel. I, I know. See, already that's the thing about that is it's like it's a punchline already. And um, but um, but I love Toledo, and my family's there. And um, and uh, Toledo, you could it, it, it's nearly international. You can drive to Windsor, Ontario, if you want, uh, in about an hour. And, um, and, uh, but we were a family that, um, that incidentally, uh, subscribed to National Geographic. We were very curious about the world. And, um, we're not particularly international, um, uh, growing up. We're very curious. And, um, we were an inky family. So my mom was a newspaper journalist. My dad worked at a print shop. And I always delivered the newspaper, worked in newspapers in high school, college, and beyond. And so, um, so we were about words, about pictures, about storytelling, and um, and that naturally led to a kind of curiosity about going places. But it was certainly um, I'm not a born traveler, and uh, my first adventures, in fact, my most recent adventures, are pretty much all about mishaps. And I remember my first backpack tour. It was, you know, it was nothing but falling off the top of buses, falling off of mopeds. Um, stepping on glass. This is in Southeast Asia. And, um, and then, you know, being when I was in the late teens and being like wide eyed and just like, you know, travel was somehow coupled with pain back then. And, um, and it, it, like travel and hardship <laughs> uh, went hand in hand. And, um, and, and, you know, travel was going to be hard and it was going to be dusty and it was going to involve food sickness and things like that. But, um, uh, but I didn't mind really because, um, because the chance to see the world, um, and to see things that were so different from what I'd grown up with, um, was just intoxicating to me. And, um, and, and also just the idea that worlds could coexist so far apart and, you know, could be so different, so divergent, um, in, in, you know, anything and topography and geography and, um, economy and cultural outlook or disposition, um, you know, in attitudes, mores, um, religions, languages, the idea that, uh, that such diversity could exist was intoxicating to me and um and it still is and i consider myself curious but i don't have hope of making everything make sense in fact i i like going places and just creating my own stories about it usually i'm wrong but um i like to learn what i can but i like to be in a place that's far removed and just sit and think about it I mean, you bring up the word curious multiple times there. What's the environment like where you're growing up that your parents really helped formulate this this curiosity inside of you? And you can hear it in your voice. Even today, you sound like you are just insatiably curious. <laughs> well, I'm a curious George. So um, <laughs> so it, 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 that, that helped. Um, having a little library of those books, um, <laughs> like I was a little monkey growing up. Um, but I think that we just... Um, it. it, it I don't know exactly what it is. My family is very, very interested in other people. We're very uh, people focused. And in Toledo, Ohio, we um, we grew up in a Jewish community, um, though we weren't Jewish. And um, and with history and heritage and background, um, some coming from Central Europe and um, some involving Holocaust survivors. And at other points, we um, we had a lot of family friends who were from the Middle East. And we were just 
we collectively as a family love to hear these stories and love to hear, um, uh, you know, about life that was different from our own. It didn't immediately inspire us to go out and, and travel these places. In fact, as a family, we weren't big international travelers. But um, but the idea that things could be different um, and that uh, that outlooks could be different and that people had these fascinating family stories, I think just meant a lot to us and also that there was something to be learned from it. So when I had a paper route um, uh, for about like probably five or six years, I loved every month I got to collect. I would collect um, from, you know, the, the, the subscription. And um, everyone on the route, like 50 people, would invite me in. I'd sit down. They would bring me stamps and coins from any place that they'd traveled. And, um, and I liked it for two reasons. Not only was it cool to build a collection as a kid, and it was colorful and fun, and it helped you organize the world, but like people were actually giving me free money. And, and just because I was interested in coins and stamps. But um, it, it just, it, it seemed to be this amazing way, thinking about the world or traveling in the world, an amazing way to spend time with someone and, um, and, and to see and appreciate a bit of difference. And um, I've always loved that. I'm looking at at your life, your journey, almost as a puzzle, and these pieces are really starting to go together for me right now. Where you're you're around the newspaper business, you have this insatiable curiosity, and, and so it makes sense. You you end up where you are. There's a lot of time in between there, so I'm wondering when you're in high school, involved with the the newspaper at that time, what's your dream? Where do you see yourself going in this career? Well, I got um, uh, let's see, I got suspended and nearly expelled <laughs> because I launched an underground newspaper in high school. So a bit of a rebel as well. Yeah, and um, but uh, and so the and the reason was that I stupidly had the whole thing photocopied at Kinko's and um, and uh, and instead of just like finding a more creative way to photocopy it myself, at any rate, they reported back to the school. And um, but uh, the 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 power of the written word um has sort of stuck with me and um and it did as well through college and not tons of words necessarily sometimes um you know poems sometimes the distillation of something about life through words is has been an important aspect of my life and is something importantly motivating. And, um, it, and I do think there's even something genetic about that. My mom was a writer. My dad um, worked with words, actually could, you know, work in a print shop, but could work in hot type upside down and backward um, to create pages. And so, um, so that has always expressing myself that way has always meant something um, to me. And then moving along, um, you know, through college and, um, and then beyond, the idea that words could make change, that words could inspire, and then certainly visuals as well, um, it, it has, it has sort of uh, driven me um, because, because I consider, you know, that the mission behind what we do at National Geographic is very important. And, um, and I apply that to travel. Uh, it, you know, it could be. The travel can be seen as frivolous, but, um, you know, a holiday, and um, I embrace that. I think I embrace everything um, from time down, which is so important so we can understand who we are and just 
piece out to time engaging around the with people around the world. And I just think that it's um, the tools we're using here, words and images and sometimes moving images and sound um, are um, are really crucial uh, elements of storytelling and they can help people make connections with the world. So it's a little bit lofty, but um, but I believe in what we do. I'm curious, was there one defining trip early on for you that just kind of that light bulb went off that you said from from this point forward, what I thought about travel has completely changed and this is going to be part of my life forever? Um, I think it, travel is a catch all, too. It, so um, so I, I've worked in you know public, senior citizen publications, garden publications, parenting publications. You do these things um, to learn and grow. But I've never been a grandparent or a parent. I haven't been a senior citizen yet. And, um, and I wasn't a particularly good gardener. So um, to succeed um, in publishing, like, you know, you, you learn. But um, but um, but when I hit on travel, I suddenly saw something that um, that brought together so many aspects of the world that um, that I just couldn't resist. However, um, I could never have intended to work here in the, um, at National Geographic um, and succeeded at that. It was um, the my editor at the Senior Citizens and uh, and Parenting Magazine, Keith Bellows, who's the former editor in chief of National Geographic Traveler, who first gave me the opportunity to work here in 1998, and I came basically to write captions and fact check stories. So. Um, so and then I learned over the years um, how to be an editor, how to work with people, um, how to work at National Geographic and advance our mission. But it was the open door um, and the opportunity. Um, I wasn't particularly. I mean, one likes to think of oneself as as sort of something charming or intelligent or whatever. I was one of many many people. And strangely, in 1998, um, you know, not wanting to go into um, digital media, though I probably should have, but really enamored of print. And, um, and I bumped into a guy, Keith Bellows, who, um, who was looking for um, possibly someone impressionable who would invest time, who could listen and could work. And, um, and uh, I think that's what I brought beyond aspects of curiosity or any aspect that I might find flattering about my personality, but I was willing to work. So do you think that relationship with Keith Bellows was the key differentiator in, in you ending up here today? I mean, under that, that mentorship? 100%. 100%. Totally. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, the, um, that, that is profound good luck. And, um, and I've been lucky, you know, to meet a lot of remarkable people and, um, and, and, but, I do think that when, um, you know, that was, that was a rare opportunity and I hope I continue to make good on it. Keith has passed now, but, um, but I, you know, I, I essentially sit in, um, in his, the position he created and, um, I now direct a publication that he guided for 18 years. I'm a different person. I have to do it a different way for today. But without that opportunity and without that mentorship, um, it it would have been very, very different for me in life. At that moment, did you understand how lucky you were to be in that position and have that opportunity? Yeah, but he, I did. But he was a reluctant mentor, and hmm. um, I mean, it's it's probably um, my you know, it's hard to say, but he wasn't particularly. 
um, generous in some ways, and um, and he wasn't always there and wasn't a teacher, um, but he was a big picture person, a big thinker, and he wanted people to get on the bus and and let's go. And um, that's an example of leadership, and uh, certainly um, to observe uh, a talented a leader in action, I think, is really the best education. And now I work for another editor, um, the editor of National Geographic magazine, Susan Goldberg, who is a very strong leader. And um, and I love working for her. She's very different. So you see big thinking. Um, you see the ability to marshal resources, to identify needs, and especially within media, um, a very um, you, you have to develop over time. Um, some ability, it's almost magical to um, perceive what people are interested in. And um, I'm definitely still working on that. Um, but I think people like Susan, people like Keith had a, um, had a, a heightened ability to, um, to connect with readers in the world and to perceive what people are interested or would be interested in. And that ultimately is um is, you know, I think what defines a, a truly, uh, you know, remarkable editor um, and what differentiates a remarkable editor um, is the ability to identify the key stories and to, to execute, deliver and connect with real people in the world. Is that heightened ability, is that based on pattern recognition and experience or is that something innate in them? I think that's a really good point. I, I, yeah, I, I love that idea of pattern recognition. It's intelligence. I mean, pattern recognition is absolutely a, a, a unique form of intelligence, and and and, um, and it also has to do with um, taking the time to observe and to learn. And um, and I think it also probably has to do with um, with overcoming a, any sort of bias you might have internally about what people ought to think or read and what they should, because after all, I'm interested in this, but instead to say, okay, look, this is where the world is right now. This is, these are the curiosities people have right now. And, um, and now I have an ability to tell stories that can appeal to that curiosity. And, um, and it's going to take this, 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 and this to make it happen. And, um, that's, that's what, um, what editors particularly Features editors um, at storytelling editors um, are do, and that kind of pattern recognition is to some degree an innate gift. Um, it can be informed by you know our analytic tools, um, what people are really using and clicking on. But um, but even after you get all that information, you got to be a good storyteller. You got to know people and like people. Well, I know we only have a few short minutes. I'm sure the listeners are begging to hear about some of these storytelling stories that you have from from your adventures and even more about the book that you guys uh, just re-released. So can you talk a little bit about the book and then maybe a few of your favorite adventures you've been able to be on? Yeah, for sure. Uh, thanks. So, Journeys of a Lifetime uh, is a um, is a coffee table book, or you might even say a cocktail table. I mean, it's absolutely book, gorgeous. Uh, for Geographic. It really. I mean, you guys did a great job with the presentation of this book, and it's it's a book that if it's on the coffee table, you're proud to display. It really is a gorgeous book. Well, um, we hope so. It's. I mean, it's 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 visually powerful, and it is packed with um, with five hundred journeys of a lifetime, and then you know a thousand experiences around the world. Um, we break it up into different sections, like across water, by road, by rail, on foot, or in search of 
um, delicious things in the world, for instance, or in the footsteps of, um, of people like Ansel Adams, the photographer, so that, um, th- that we're really trying to create pathways of discovery in the world that are built on interests um, that people have or interests that people can discover. So, um, so it's, uh, it, 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 and not only that, but there are cool sections like, um, you know, top 10s throughout the book of top 10 vanishing places in the world, by which we mean these are places you should see now that are important to see now, but more important than that is these are places we should be aware of. Uh, um, we should recognize that are under threat. So um, things like climate change, uh, things like exploitation of natural resources in a rainforest in Sumatra, for instance, climate change affecting Great Barrier Reef, um, things that are shrinking Dead Sea um, or the Everglades. Um, so at National Geographic, I mean, it's core to our mission um, to support conservation efforts and um, and to uh, increase awareness of um, of what our 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 global patrimony is, whether it's cultural or natural patrimony. Things we've inherited, we don't own. We can go see and appreciate, um, and uh, and then we can also possibly help contribute to a brighter future for some of them. So this book is loaded with stuff like that. Um, uh, I mean, some of the, the trips that I've enjoyed in the past, um, uh, I think of safaris a lot, um, uh, which is, you know, a very rare form of travel because um, it is an absolute disconnect and yet it's a, a very focused activity. So I'm thinking of possibly being in a Makoro, a little dugout canoe in the Okavanga Delta um, in Botswana, which is a key area of conservation efforts by National Geographic right now. And um, when you're in a dugout canoe, you are silently cruising, skimming the surface um, of a channel that is seasonally flooded in the Okavango, could be permanent water as well, and um, surrounded by reeds and grass with hippos um, and elephants sort of rustling and uh, potentially mock charging and birds, uh, malachite kingfishers um, darting through the air uh, to pick off dragonflies and gobble them up. You are observing. It's almost exhausting in a wonderful way to be on safari because you're using the skills that you have to observe the world, but differently. Um, you are totally focused outward and quietly inward digesting um, what you're seeing. And so um, so the book features um, activities that I, that I would say are meditative in some ways. Um, it also features, you know, journeys like rail journeys or, um, river cruise journeys that, um, that are a combination of active, um, and, and also, you know, sort of engaging with local cultures and geographies. Um, another one that I love, um, is the, uh, in uh, Southwest India, Kerala, um, the state of Kerala, um, is a, uh, a sort of soggy state with these um, channels of water um, called the backwaters. And there again, you can be in a little canoe, um, just uh, kind of skimming along for hours on end and seeing these palm trees and um, coconut palms. Um, you can see these toddy tappers who are climbing up the, the palm trees to tap the sap that comes out. Um, and in the morning is somewhat sweet and then can be used to leaven bread. Um, and then it, by the afternoon is fermented. So that is like, it's like, it's like ever clear. It's like this powerful <laughs> blast of 
fire and um and will really set you up um but it's everyday life um so you know and and to me to see everyday life in another place and um and and to recognize that the world's both big and small at the same time is is just um the gift of travel i mean it's so incredible to hear about you describing these places that I'm unfamiliar with and just thinking about uh, the time that I would love to spend there. If you only had one trip left that you could go on, where are you going? Lord, uh, um, but we have a whole year ahead of us. <laughs> um, if I could, uh, <laughs> um, if I could only do one trip, um, Hmm. You know, it wouldn't be um, Antarctica. That is a place that people dream of. Um, but I don't like cold weather that much. And um, and it takes a couple weeks to do that. Though, actually, if I only had one more trip, I would want to stretch it out a long time. So maybe that would be a good idea. But um, I haven't been to the Galapagos Islands. And um, and Galapagos are well-traveled, but, um, you know, this is this cradle of discovery um, off the, far off the coast of Ecuador um, and um, known for Darwin, Darwin's finches, um, known for uh, Darwin's um, theories on um, evolution through natural selection, not necessarily survival of the fittest, but um, selection and adaptation. And um, it's, you know, I think everyone has these thoughts um, about how the world is connected and, um, and, and everyone knows that we can observe the world. Darwin is just one example of someone who scientifically sat down to observe the world and make connections. I would love to go to the Galapagos and just see um, these things that I've read about. And um, and that have thought about it and that have also sort of influenced our way of thinking um, in the world uh, so profoundly. Yeah. So I guess that. But if it's my last trip, I, I can tell you I'd make it last like about, I don't know, 40 years. So <laughs> 40 years in the Galapagos. That's my memoir. <laughs> oh, I absolutely love it. One <laughs> final question before we link the listeners up with you. Recommendations for anyone just trying to get outside their comfort zone and find out more about themselves and the world we live in. What's a recommendation for them? What do they need to do? How do they need to approach travel? That's a great question. Um, first, throw away the bucket list. We have this book. It's got 500 journeys in it. The point isn't to take all 500 journeys, and the point is definitely not to take the 10 most important journeys in the world that someone said you should take. I think the most important thing people can do is really um, take a moment, sit down with a cup of coffee, think about what you're interested in and curious about. Don't be, um, don't be sort of influenced by judgment. Um, of anyone. And um, and then decide, what does that mean? Are you interested? Are you an outdoor person? Do you love wildlife? Um, do you just love food? Would it be really cool to learn how to cook uh, food in Vietnam? Um, are you interested in religion and spirituality? Would it be interesting to go to Bali? Do the thing that you're already interested in. and um, And then, as you're planning your trip, Make sure not to be a frenzied maniac um, as you're um, about ready to hop on the plane, which I am. I do all the time, and I'm so frustrated. But um, but give yourself the time and peace of mind to plan and appreciate and enjoy the lead up to the trip, and so that when you get on the plane, you're ready to go, and that you know you are giving yourself a gift, and um, you've earned it, 
and it represents what you're interested in in the world, and that this trip is a creative and personal expression, um, and you hope it works out, um, and that you get something out of it because uh, um, because this is for you. And that's the idea, is um, it's not to have a bragging list, um, and it's not to have the same list that everybody else has. It's to have something, uh, an experience that's meaningful to you and that you will remember and, um, and, and could, you know, and you can reflect on and retreat to when you want to as a, as a key moment. And um, to have a couple of those in a lifetime, I think, is success. That's absolutely incredible. So George, I, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Uh, I appreciate all the advice and insights. Well, th- thank you so much. I really appreciate it, Sean. And thanks for the opportunity. For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.